This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Morning, I'm Jeremy. If we haven't met yet, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and if you are new, I'd love to hang out afterwards and get to know you, hear a little bit about your story. If you have time to to hang, I'd like that. Uh, If you haven't already done so, I invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7. There should be several Bibles scattered throughout our building here underneath the chairs there in front of you if you need one. Luke chapter 7. Our 28th week now in our journey through this book where we go verse by verse and uh, often word by word, uh, taking as truth and discovering what God has for us from this text. And Jesus has just finished up in chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, very famous sermon. And as you find Luke 7, I want to take a second to say Happy Father's Day uh, to the daddies who are celebrating their very first Father's Day today. Congratulations. Your road of sanctification is before you. (laughs) You have no idea. (laughs) But it's a great journey and a great road to be on. You're there to parent your kids, and they're there to kid you, okay? They're going to kid you well as you parent them, okay? They're going to child you faithfully, uh, whether you're ready for it or not. And uh, it's a thrill. It's a joy. You're there to help them, and whether you realize it this early on in your journey or not, they're there to help you. Uh, They're going to teach you a, a lot. To those men who thought this was going to be a special day, but tragedy struck and disappointment has settled in, and today is uh, somewhat of a a punch in the gut. I'm sorry. I'm praying for you, and I'm praying with you today. To the dads that wish they did all sorts of things differently, who wish that things were different with your family, And you live with guilt, you live with regret, so much so you don't even really know where to begin. I pray for refreshment. I pray for renewal with your relationships, with your children, with your spouse. And I'm sorry that the the way things seem to be going right now, but I have hope with you that things don't have to stay this way. To the single guys who long to be married, who long to be a daddy, long to be a husband. We anticipate with you, and and I'm sorry that you haven't been able to experience this yet, but we hope with you. To those who have lost their fathers and wish so badly to have them back, if just for 60 seconds, imagine, I can't imagine the loss that you have, the mourn, the mourning, that you're sitting in. We must have your help. We must have your help when this becomes more of our stories in the future. To the children of all ages who struggle through this day, I pray for things to change. I pray for reconciliation, for closeness, and I pray for redemption, for grace and mercy and forgiveness. To the faithful daddies and the daddies seeking to become increasingly faithful, press on. Get low before the Lord. Humble before him and seek Jesus. 
It takes a special man to be a daddy. It takes a special man to raise a child and to help nurture them into being capable adults with tender hearts, with thick, tough skin, and skilled hands. Daddies must seek to become selfless. They must be responsible, courageous, daring, tender yet tough and strong, and of course, reliable. Daddies are to protect and care for, love, and lead his small flock called family. And there is absolutely no way you can do this the way that you were created to do it and intended to do it without having God's help. And I encourage you to stop trying and to seek his help. May you become a stronger daddy by believing Jesus, by welcoming accountability of faithful Christian brothers and Christian sisters and pursuing Jesus through prayer and scriptures, by repenting early and often and by saying words that are so hard to say, but they're healing words, but by saying often, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Healing words hard words. May you turn your eyes from your prized possessions and porn and gaze into the glory that's found in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what you need. This is what you must have. This is what your family needs most from you today. And I pray that you're encouraged today through your time spent with us. Men, Thanks for gathering with us today. I ask you that you lean in, and I ask that you listen closely. In Luke 6, Jesus concludes his sermon with a plea to all to build their lives, their identity, their worth, to establish everything that they have in life upon Jesus the rock and only upon Jesus. Men and women, I pray that you hear this. Everything else that you build your life upon will most certainly fail you in the end. It cannot save you in the way that you must be saved. And I pray that, that you learn more about Jesus today, the real Jesus, that you begin today to see God differently, that you see him as loving, that you see him as a good father, which is a, is a perspective that is only made possible to you through the faithfulness of Jesus, God's son. So with this, let's approach the text, Luke chapter 7 and verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and he was nearly dead. He was all but dead. He was at the point of death. And this servant was highly valued, prized, and cherished by him. So a, a centurion, a Roman citizen, a Gentile, okay? So you had Gentiles and Jews. They didn't like each other. Okay? This Roman centurion was a non-Jew, a Gentile, an outsider to the covenants of promise that the children of Israel had, that they cherished, that they believed in. These centurions were the backbone of the Roman Empire as Rome was settled in and occupying and oppressing Israel, Jerusalem. And this, this Roman guard, this Roman centurion had a sick servant, a very sick, very ill, dying, very close to death servant. Luke is the one who wrote this book. That's why it's called the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote this, and he was a historian and a doctor. And Luke, being a physician, doesn't give us much here. You would think that he would. 
And so what we must assume here is that he didn't feel that it was important as to how this man ended up this way, but his emphasis in not speaking of how he ended up this way points to the greater emphasis that this man's life is over. It doesn't matter how he got here, it's finished. The servant is dying. He's detaching from others. A desperate struggle settles in for every last breath. A death watch has begun by friends and family. Active death was setting in. And the servant was a tremendous help to this Roman general. He was perhaps a beloved friend. Maybe they've been friends, close friends for, for decades, for some time. In Matthew, he, Matthew records this same story here, this same instance, this event. Uh, we learn that this man was suffering terribly uh, and was paralyzed. Maybe this man had suffered a fall of some sort and left him unable to walk and in excruciating, excruciating, tormenting pain. Maybe back pain or pain in the legs or something. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. He's a Roman centurion. He sent to Jesus elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, I love this. I love that first part of verse 3, when he heard about Jesus. That's just wonderful. That popped off the page. Man, I wonder who told him. I wonder who told him about Jesus. You see, long before this day that we have here in Luke 7, Jesus had worked in a person's heart to lead them to talk to this Roman general about Jesus. Somehow, he's heard He's heard that unlike so many, Jesus can help heal. So he orders certain men to go and talk with Jesus. Perhaps he doesn't feel that, that he can send Romans to con Gentiles to convince a Jewish man. So he uses a couple Jewish elders, religious guys, to go and ask Jesus to come and help his dying friend. The centurion desperately wanted to help the servant that he loved. We can assume here that he's tried everything that he could think of, but there, there seemed to be nothing that he could do to help. And man, this is a situation that you and I, we encounter at a frustratingly high level. We encounter it medically when the doctors tell us there's nothing else that they can do for one of our friends or family members, or they don't really know what's going on with us. They can't identify something. We encounter it relationally within our friendships when we don't know how to bring people together and we just want people to be able to get along. We encounter this same struggle and tension financially when someone close to us is deep in debt and have significant needs and this just seems impossible to get away from the situation that they're in. And we encounter it spiritually when we present the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel before others and people still don't get it. They still don't want to know Jesus. And there's many other ways that, that we feel this way, but what do you do when there's nothing else that you can do to help people that you care for, to help people that you love? The thing to do is to ask God for help. Just like the centurion did. I mean, he had heard about the power of Jesus to perform miracles, and he had nowhere else to turn. At this point, Jesus seemed to be his only hope. So he asked Jesus to work a saving cure that would rescue his friend from death. In verse 4, when he came to Jesus, they, when they came to Jesus, these Jewish elders, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue here. 
So this Roman centurion is a powerful man. As an officer in the Roman army, he had roughly 100 men or more serving under his command. He was not only a powerful man, he was a strong man. According to the historian Polybus, in, he born in uh, 200 BC, he, he, he wrote this about the, the Romans that were appointed to this rank of Roman centurion. He said that they must be men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. When hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post. He was strong. He was powerful. But this man was also wealthy. Centurions were well paid in those days, especially if they had been on successful military campaigns as a man of this age had been on several. And this is a man who had enough money to apparently be able to in some way finance public buildings like a synagogue. Most believe this to be a very seasoned general, an older man with lots of money, power, and a strong reputation. Now, I'm not sure if these Jewish religious leaders pleaded earnestly because they cared for the servant or if they were ordered by the Roman general to beg and plead in an earnest way. I don't know. But regardless, these men come up to Jesus and they beg him to come to the general's home to heal the servant. And they read the man's resume. Jesus, man, this guy's a big deal. He's worthy to have you. Even though he's a Roman general, even though he's a Gentile, he likes Israel. He likes Israel like a lot, okay? In fact, he's one of the Romans who was key in getting us our building, our, our synagogue here in town. I mean, you've taught there. Like, you've, you've enjoyed the benefit of having him help us get our building. You know what I mean? Like, this guy's a big deal. He's a big deal, Jesus. Now, I, remember, I just try to place my mind, which is scary, into the mind of Christ and think, what would Jesus be thinking here? Right? Big deal, huh? Hmm. That's interesting. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. He built a building. Cool. Right? So given the context and given the, who Jesus is, the next statement is remarkable. It is one of the craziest things that you can ever read. Jesus went with them. This is a picture of meekness. It's a picture of kindness. It's a picture of gentleness. It's a picture of mercy and grace. Jesus hears that this man's a big deal. He doesn't smirk. He doesn't read his own resume. <laughs> Building, earth. <laughs> he goes along to see the sick servant. This is meekness and this is kindness. And be reminded by Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us, that draws us into repentance. So it is with this Roman centurion, as we'll see in just a moment. But friends, this is the real Jesus. And all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is reaching out to help people in desperate need, just like you and just like me. He's able and he's willing to help us. The desire of his saving heart is to help rescue people from sickness, sin, and death. And you see that on clear display right here in this story. So he goes along with them here in verse 6. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, second group of people, 
He sent some friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. So these friends here, most likely Roman citizens, they catch Jesus just before he gets to the house. And they read somewhat of a quote here to Jesus from this Roman general. I'm not worthy. Who am I to have someone like you under my roof, in my home, and near me? I am not worthy to approach you. I feared that you wouldn't even waste your time on somebody like me. As a matter of fact, if you would just say the words, I'm certain that you could heal my friend from right here without coming any closer. I, too, am a man who, who can command things to happen. I can make things happen. I can fund things. I can order people. I can direct others. I have authority, but it's not enough for this. But you, you, you have the authority. You have the power to do even this. Now, apparently this centurion, he has second thoughts. And earlier he sent men to persuade Jesus to come and help because he deserved it. By now, a messenger has returned to his house and said, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus is on his way. And possibly the, the messenger had also reported what the elders said to Jesus, that the centurion was worthy of his help. But the more that he thought about it, the more that he processed what was going on, the more the centurion realized what was happening, that actually he was unworthy. In fact, he didn't even deserve to have Jesus walk into his house. And by the grace of God, the centurion saw himself as he really was. Self-awareness, soul awareness. He knew that he wasn't worthy at all, not compared to Jesus. As Jesus draws near, despite Jesus being the much more deserving of the characters involved, the Roman centurion changes. What happened? This was puzzling to me. It was really difficult to study this because it just, it seems so strange. Like what changed? The only thing that you can see in the text that changed is Jesus got closer. The only thing that you can see in the text is Jesus drew near. Friend, that's the answer that we're all looking for. It's Jesus, his nearness, his authority, his presence, his sufficiency, his willingness, his, his, his kindness, his gentleness, his love. When Jesus draws near to us, we are changed. We're changed. So we must be seeking him, asking him to come to us, to heal us and help us to change us. How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus and how do you see yourself? These questions are connected, you know. How do you see Jesus and how do you see yourself? It's because when we see Jesus as he really is in all his splendor, in his magnificence, in his kindness, we also see our otherness compared to him and his otherness compared to us. And therefore we see our true spiritual need. The first and most important thing we need to see about ourselves is that we're sinners. We're sinners and we're in desperate need of God's grace. And when we see ourselves as we really are, the way that God sees us and in all the unworthiness of our sin, we see need when you see yourself as you really are, you notice something is lacking. But in the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see what he does for us. 
and our need, we then see the supreme worthiness of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the worthy Son of God. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the universe. Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all things were made. He's the mighty and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of any Lord. He's the holy lamb of God that was slain and killed for our sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead for our justification and being made right before God. Therefore, he is the one who deserves all honor and blessing and glory and power. If this is who Jesus is, then who are we? We're not worthy, not compared to that. The answer is that we're needy, weak, dead, hopeless, and helpless sinners. All these modifiers are littered throughout the scriptures. Littered. You don't see that we're capable. The only thing we're really capable of is messing things up and sinning a lot. We're needy, weak, dead, hopeless, and helpless sinners who do not deserve the grace of God. Indeed, we only and always deserve judgment from God. That's the only attention that we deserve is finger pointing and judgment from God. That's it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to endure the finger pointing of God for us, that he endured the judgment of God towards us and our sin for us so that we wouldn't have to. We must never forget the unworthiness of our sinful nature or the unrighteousness of the sins that we have committed and commit against God. And we must never forget that Jesus became our sin, that he took our sin upon himself, that he suffered in order to give us forgiveness and healing, that he's taken care of our greatest need. Remember this, think this. Dwell on this. We know how to be afraid of things. We know how to be anxious over things. Therefore, we know how to meditate. Meditate on this. Think this. Now, I'm not sure if the Roman centurion confessed and believed at this point, but he had a certain faith in Jesus, did he not? He knew that he was unworthy to be near such a man as Jesus. He had faith. And he was humble. If we're proud of who we are, if we're proud of what we've accomplished in this way, we can never be saved. According to 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud. But according to James 4, 1 Peter 5, and Proverbs 3, God gives grace to the humble. And when we admit that we don't deserve to be saved, man, we're ready to receive God's mercy in Christ. Only the humble can be changed by Jesus. If we're humble, then we're ready to say, Lord, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm not worthy to come into your presence, but I believe the promises found in your word that in the blood of your cross, there's enough grace for me. There's a lot I don't know, but I do know I'm a sinner and that you can help me. In verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And then turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. That says a lot about this man's faith. It also says a lot about the lack of faith 
of the children of Israel. He marveled. Jesus marveled. The thing that impressed Jesus, the thing that that made Jesus marvel was this man's faith, was his humble belief. There's only two times in the four gospels when Jesus is said to experience this sort of astonishment, this sort of amazement. The first is when he was in Jerusalem in Mark 6, verse 6, and his family and friends rejected him in his hometown of Nazareth. The scripture says he marveled because of their unbelief. And this is the second. This time it's not unbelief that amazed Jesus, but belief. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus turns to the crowd, mostly made up of Jews, perhaps including the Jewish elders who had invited Jesus to begin with. And Jesus tells this Jewish crowd with many religious cats present that nowhere in all of Israel is there faith like this of the Roman general. Faith that believes Jesus, faith that he can heal, faith that he can do it without even being present, without even seeing the sick or seeing the needy. This man has awareness of his need and and the awareness that Jesus has the ability to meet this need. A certain humble disposition is present within this Roman centurion. I believe it's because Jesus, though he was a bit far from the house, his spirit was already there within the home. And he was already working in this man's heart. And the Roman centurion didn't do anything to bring about this humility before Jesus. He simply had need and called out for help. Friends, you're not responsible to change your heart. You're not responsible to change your heart. You see, as we become more aware of our need, which is a work of God in our hearts, and as we're more of aware of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, we humble ourselves before him. We state our need, believing and hoping in him, and he changes us. God will change your heart if you simply humble yourself and ask him for help. And when those who had been sent, verse 10 When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus heals the servant right then, right there. The men leave. Jesus leaves. And they find the servant all better. The servant's health, his healing, is an outward picture of the centurion's heart, I believe, as Jesus drew near. Different, better. This is one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever performed. He did not even go to the man. He just thought it. Maybe said a simple word from a distance. But by the time everyone got home, the servant was fully recovered. J.C. Ryle summarized this. He said, A greater miracle of healing than this is nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the suffer, without touch of hand or look of eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. By the same word that created the universe out of nothing and that now today brings sinners from darkness into light, Jesus delivered this sick servant from death. And he did this in part because a centurion trusted in his power and his ability to heal. Friend, this serves as a a basic principle for your salvation. You will not be healed by the worthiness of your works. You won't be healed and changed by the good things that you do. You will only be saved by simple and humble faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's all. Believing the word and the works of Jesus Christ is your salvation. That's it. 
David Gooding said this on this event, on this passage. He says, salvation is not granted on the basis of a man's good works, worth, or merit. It is given on the grounds of faith. And faith, according to this story, Luke 7, 1 through 10, is not confidence that we have done the best that we could, that God will assess our merits generously. Faith is abandoning trust in our works and merit and any fault of deserving salvation and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, this is it and this is all. It's like the lyrics of the great hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is saving faith. Friend, do you believe Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? Are you relying upon Jesus for your salvation, or are you trusting in something else? Are you trusting that you're just going to one day be able to fix your servant, fix yourself, be good enough to change things. By the way, our greatest need isn't physical healing. Our greatest need isn't the physical healing of ourselves or a close friend. Our greatest illness, our greatest sickness, our, our greatest problem is our sin. And this sin that we've inherited through our nature, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, it's affected all of us and it's killed us and it's killing us. And there's nothing that we can do to heal ourselves. We're just like this man, sick and dying. But the gospel is that Jesus came to us to save us. First Peter 2, 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die, yes, but die to sin, and that we might live to righteousness. It is by his wounds, his illness that he took upon himself, which is our illness. It's his wounds that you have been healed, set free. You see, Jesus isn't afraid of broken people. He came for broken people. If you think you're altogether lovely, he didn't come for you. And until you humble yourself, you will not see him as the rescuer that he is and that you must have him be. Jesus isn't afraid of your sickness. He's not afraid of your problems. He's not afraid of your past. He's not afraid of your issues. He's not afraid of these things. He came for that sickness. He came for those problems. He came for your very past. He came for your issues. And Jesus promises in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never send away or cast out. No one, not even you, is too far gone, too dirty, too beyond the ability for Jesus to love and heal and change. You may feel, though, that you've done too much wrong, that you're pathetic, that you're too lonely, that you're too abandoned, too fickle, too noncommittal. I want you to hear this. Jesus is after you, and he wants you. In meekness and kindness, in tenderness and grace, in mercy and in love, Jesus is coming after you. He's pursuing you. It's part of why you're here today. And he wants to heal you. Friends, you're not too dirty. You're not too messed up for the healing love of God that's made possible through the hard work of Jesus and the faithful work of the Spirit in your heart. You're not too complicated. You're not the exception to his grace. You're not too sick. You're not too needy. But if you feel that you're too needy, you're just right because you're aware of your need. Press into that. Don't push back. Press in. Jesus alone has the power to heal your broken and sinful heart, to make you clean, to make you sinless and restored in the eyes of God. Believe this. Respond to Jesus in trust and faith.
believe him. As I was studying this, I asked myself many times, where am I in the story? And where are you? Who are we here? We're the sick, paralyzed servant lying on the ground, dying without hope, and we're eaten up with brokenness, and we're being destroyed by sin. That's you. The servant situation is a reminder of our own mortality, is it not? I mean, sooner or later, his situation is one that you and I, we all must face because we're all under God's death sentence, his judgment against our sin. This is the need behind all our other needs, and this is the sum here of all our fears. One day, you're going to die. One day, we're all going to die. And unless there's some way for us to gain life after death, we will suffer without God for all eternity. And this is called hell. And friend, it's more than a curse word. This is justice. Everyone in hell is getting what we deserve. And when you get down to it, theologically, it's what we want. But grace steps in and doesn't give us what our sinful nature wants. It interrupts our rebellion. It stops our funeral. You see, this is all something most people try to avoid thinking about but can never escape entirely. The unavoidable reality that someday we're all going to die. We feel young. We feel strong, resilient, bulletproof. Until one day we realize life is really fragile. Bruce Milne writes in Know the Truth that death confronts us as nothing else does with our insignificance and weakness, and it exposes the folly of our pretensions to greatness. Even when we attempt to face death with courage, we, we never succeed in finally overcoming it. It dominates us until at last we too go to receive the wages of sin. This is what the centurion's servant was up against. Humanity's last and greatest enemy, death. But he wasn't dying alone. He wasn't dying, being uncared for. He had a master who loved him. He had a master who cared for him. Friend, this is the gospel. You see, the Bible says that this servant was highly valued. And certainly this can refer to some sort of youthfulness that this servant had, but the word can also mean precious in the sense that the master loved him. This centurion was a great-hearted man with good affections. And he loved his servant and wanted to do whatever he could to help him. Now, friend, right here, be reminded of something that you probably already have heard and perhaps you already know, but listen. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though Perhaps a, a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. 
Be reminded of something that you probably already know, but something that you must hear again. And I pray that you hear it as if for the first time that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that means you too. You're not the exception to this promise, but whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God loves you, for God so loved the world, you have a master who cares for you, and it's not okay with him to leave you there on the mat lying in your death. It's not okay. And he's coming after you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world and push you further away into your death and sickness, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him, my friend, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Friend, everybody needs the saving work of Jesus. Who else can deliver us from death? Who else can carry us through our last ordeal and bring us safely to heaven? The only hope for us in death is the life that comes through Jesus Christ. As we suffer the sickness of sin, the sickness that leads to death, we must ask him to come with all the grace of his saving cure to help us. What is your hope if not this Jesus? What is your hope? You've got to think about this stuff. You're young, strong, resilient, capable, daring, and brave, and courageous. Death has killed every person like that except Jesus. So you've got to think about this stuff. It's not morbid. It's intelligence. It's thinking. It's giving it the time that it needs and that it deserves. There's a lot of things we spend our time thinking on. My goodness. Dwelling on, pondering on. Wasting so much of our lives away. Friend, please think on these things. Thinking on these things is how one becomes a Christian. Christian, it's time for us to remember what Jesus has done for us through communion. Now, don't drift. Think. You are dead. You are approaching a godless eternity with no hope, right? That's your story. If you're a Christian, you know this to be true. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This is what we acknowledge and celebrate through communion. God did this for you. He did this for us through Jesus, his son. Christian, this is your story. This is your story. This is our story only because of the mercy and grace and love of God and the work of Jesus for us. Now, for those who aren't Christians yet or perhaps those who are becoming Christians right now, this can be your story. Believe Jesus. As Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do this. Believe Jesus. Turn to him and find in him what you thought could be found elsewhere. Turn to him today. Christian, believer, this is a special time for you. May it be special. 
as you remember the work of Jesus for you, as you take this bread that's symbolic of the body of Christ and his perfect life where he lived as your representative, you take this bread and you dip it into the juice or the wine, that juice or the wine symbolic of the blood of Christ and his death where he was suffering and dying as your substitute. You take this bread, you dip it in this juice and wine, you remember, you remember, my friend, don't dare forget. Remember what Christ has done for you. This is the gospel. It's reminding you of what Christ has done, reminding you of just how much you're loved, reminding you just how much you're cared for, that you have a master who cares for you. Let me pray for our time together. Father, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you're not okay, not okay at all, with us just staying in our death, staying in our rebellion, suffering the consequences of our sins. Lord, thank you that you, out of a love that can't be really understood in full, out of this love that you sent your son to endure what we deserve so that we could have what we don't deserve. Lord, would this land on our hearts in a fresh way this morning, a new way this morning, a unique way today, as we take this bread and dip it into this juice or wine. Lord, help us think through these things deeply and cherish the truth. Lord, be with my friends who are thinking on these things, perhaps in a way that they haven't before. Lord, would you give them faith? Would you give them belief? Would you bring about this strange change that we see in the centurion's heart? Would you give that to them? Lord, would they be healed and helped by you? Father, add your special blessing to this time of remembering this morning, this time of communion, this time of the Lord's Supper this morning. God, please, we remember you and your faithfulness and your hard work. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.